and welcome to Pasture Bedtime Events. I'm your host, Atsia, and I will be guiding you through this month's live stream. This is our first official event as Pasture Bedtime. I'm so excited to share it with you all. We have some wonderful stories lined up for August, all about animals. It's going to be amazing. Stay tuned. Uh, for this event, we decided to support Peyton Zoo. Why Peyton Zoo, you might ask? Well, Peyton Zoo do a lot of conservation work, both locally and globally. For example, they support Torbay, Cleaner Cost Initiative, the Falkland Conservation. They also aim to inspire and empower people to help fight to protect wildlife. And obviously we want to help in this. So without further ado, here is our first story. It is written by Rebecca Kinder and read by the lovely Cedric. This is The Great Escape. Today's story, written by Rebecca Kinder, is called The Great Escape, and is inspired by a partially true story. It is read by Cedric Esquivel. The day has come. It is moving day. There are boxes stacked up in every room of the house. Some already unpacked, but left aside. There is a young girl running around. Boxes are surrounding the young child of around five years old. With her pulled and tamed back into children's that lay parts way down her back and curled against her is her doll. This doll she takes everywhere with her. It was her first ever doll that she had been gifted when she was born. She sits on the floor starts to lightly sing to herself as she is playing with the doll that she referred to as Miss Lily. She is singing and laughing and playing by herself. Everything had been so loud for days as they'd been packing all their stuff to move, but now it's finally quiet. The younger mom can be heard from the next door unpacking, while her brother is upstairs playing video games. What the family has not realized is that during all the moving, the snake tent has broken. There is just enough room that Phoenix, the family corn snake, has managed to slip out. Sweetie, are you okay? The mother asks. Yes, Mama, I am. The young girl continues playing happily to herself. Sometime passes over as the mom is putting everything away and tiring as she goes. That she moves into the living room and decides to change the water in the snake tank. She realizes that the vent on the tank is broken and that it must have broken while they were moving the tank into the new house. That is when she realizes that the snake isn't there anymore. Have you seen the snake? The mother asks while popping her head into her son's room. The boy doesn't look up. He just keeps playing the game. He has a smirk itched into his lips. Isn't she in her tank? Nope, it is broken. She's gotten out. Do not tell Bex. She'll freak out. <laughs> the boy just laughed at this because it's very true. His little sister did not like animals of any kind. You remember back to her running away from the baby lambs at the farm. 
The mother and son are running around, moving boxes around, looking for any place that the young snake could be hiding. The mother pulls up loose floorboards, looking to see whether she's underneath, trying to make a great escape. But they find nothing, not even a hint. She had been there at all. And there lay the snake, just curled up on top of the boxes in the living room. Apple is slipping away today as the family panic going from room to room. It was not the mother or the son who found that. Even though the mother and son had been trying to hide the fact that the snake had gotten out, the young girl realizes and starts spinning around looking for her small friend. So, the girl that has always run away from all the animals at the farm finds the snake. I found ya! She laughed to herself. I knew I could find ya! See what a big girl I am? Mama will be so proud of you, won't she? The young girl shouts down. Mama, I found her! Can I have a hold of her, please? Pretty please? I am big enough now and she's my friend and she's lovely. The mother rushes downstairs and sees the young girl in front of the snake. She laughs at the smile that is on her daughter's face. You can go back into playing! Back found her! She shouts up to the young boy, who has followed her into the room. He runs up the stairs so quickly that all you can hear is the stomp on the stairs. Of course he can hold the snake, but you have to be careful, the mother says. She carefully picks up the snake and passes her to the young girl, who is sitting on the floor, beaming up at her mother. The mother sits on the floor with her daughter, spends this quiet moment with her. Thank you very much. Thank you to Cedric for reading our first story of this event. Once again, that was beautifully written by Rebecca Kinder, a story about Phoenix the corn snake, and a reminder that snakes can make good pets too, provided that they don't go missing and that you're not afraid of them, like I am. Uh, so our second story of this event is called Big Nose Problems. It's written by Ella Good, and reading it will be Helena Buchamp. So please enjoy. Whom are you asked? Well, my name is Belle and my family originated from Germany, but we emigrated all over the world and within a short amount of time my predecessors reached England. I grew up in Glastonbury with my 11 siblings and my German-speaking mother. It was difficult learning English when my humans adopted me. Now I'm all grown up, three years wiser, weighing in at 39 kilograms or a steady 84-ish pounds if you're American. Either way, I am big. Thus, I have a big nose. The problems for a big-nosed beast, like me, simply can't be described in human words, but I shall try my best. You can't tell my human masters of my many secrets, such as the fact that I can type, or they'll have me doing all kinds of tedious chores, or worse, a nine-to-five job at the office. Goodness, I couldn't bear to do such a thing. I'm a Doberman. They might even have me translating German literature for their own capitalist gain. I couldn't do such a thing, and I shan't. Not again. My nose. 
There I was, minding my own business, smelling the front door and someone just had to open it. Just how selfish are these humans? I'm a dog, I have dog problems. I'm always getting told off for putting my nose in places. It doesn't belong, howling at the moon, stealing food off of a spoon, watching people eat and trying to eat the cat. It's not my fault he smells irresistibly tasty, is it? I hear something. What am I hearing? Bell! Ah! That's me! That's me! I'm running as fast as my fluffy legs can carry me, and my tail is swinging out of control like a medieval flail. I can't contain my excitement any longer. Oh no, I need to pee! Gah! But I see my human holding my lead. I can't believe it's time for walkies. I can just hold it in. I'm so excited. I get to smell trees and smell the grass and lick stuff. Hallelujah. I'm walking down the street. Everyone knows me. I'm bad to the bone. I'm a big doberman. Those poodles see me, they hide away. I be waltzing, looking fine. Finally, I can see the park. My human releases my lead. I'm finally freed of my chains, and my nose shall conquer all in sight. Who is that I see? My, my, isn't Rex the Bulldog looking wonderful? Apparently, his humans put him on a grain-free raw food diet, and I must concur, he is looking great. However, he does smell different, and I can't decide if it's a better or worse smell. What is this I see? A sworn mortal foe, it's a seagull. I must plan my assault attack. Will I take him on via the rear, or will I strike head-on? Well, there isn't any other way, so I know I must. Charge! I run, I hop, and I strike. Unfortunately, yet again, I wasn't fast enough, and I failed my mission. Now, to add further humiliation, I hear my master shouting at the top of their lungs. Bell, get back here! Alas, I am left with no choice but to run back. Oh, jeez. They are super mad this time. Must use my cute Doberman charm puppy dog eyes. Hmm. Seems to be working. They aren't shouting at me so much now. My master is speaking. Oh, Belle, how can I be mad at you? You're so adorable. I'm sorry, Belle. Here, have a biscuit. Victory is most certainly my destiny. Yes, I've done it again. I have charmed my master with my cuteness. It's home time now. I should take a great big nap when we get home. Good night now. The very next day. Ooh, I shall dig a big doggy hole and live like a mole. I even have a song. Come on now, sing along with me. A one, a two, a one, two, three, four. Diggy, diggy, dog, dog, dog digs. All day working on the bricks. I'll dig myself free and be a big dog. Belle, what on earth are you doing? What do we tell you about digging holes in the lawn? Belle, come here this instant. Oh, jeez, one of my masters sounds real mad this time. Belle, you're a bad dog. You're having a time out. Now get on your bed. This is top dog Mr. Boss, master father of the house. Not even the eyes work on him. I must sit here and reflect on my bad deeds. He did tell me not to dig, but I forgot. Being a dog is super hard, you know. It's not my fault only lasts up to eight minutes, or I have a big nose that just happens to poke someone's bottom. Humans will never understand. That's why I'm writing this book. Just hope my masters don't see it. Ah! It's the cat. What is he doing? Oh, that crafty feline. He's at it again. Stealing the bacon off the countertop. It looks rather hot, though. I can hear Mr. Kitty now. Meow! I was right. Oh, yes, he's dropped the bacon on the floor and he's run away. Yay for me! I shall enjoy this. What is that I hear? Belle, so you're the one who's been stealing my lunches. The crafty feline has done it again. I'm the one getting in trouble for his bad deeds again. 
Master, no, I'm afraid. Forgive me. I got you this new squeaky toy ball. As you've been bad, I shall have to put it away until you're a good dog. No, Master, please. I want the ball. Please, I'll do anything. Belle, stop causing a commotion. My masters are evil sometimes. Why can't I eat bacon or chocolate cake? So what is bad for me? It's bad for them too. Belle, Belle, it's time for a walk. One of my other masters has rescued me. My chariot awaits. I get to go in the car today. Belle, we're going to the beach today. My favourite place, yes. Oh, cheese, I've got a pee. I'm so excited. I must run outside now. Ooh, sniff, 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 sniff. Behind the pine tree. This spot is perfect. Now, if you wouldn't mind, I would like some privacy. I'm back. We are now at the beach. Me and my master are having a great time. This master of mine is super cool. He even lets me have the leftovers of his ice cream. He also throws my ball super far away, the furthest I've ever seen. The beach is so much fun. I always make new friends every time I go and I get to chase those evil seagulls. I can dig all I like here. Kids love it when I help them dig big holes. However, I haven't encountered any moles. Why would they want to dig a hole if they can't live with the moles? Well now, as the sun sets for departure, me and my master take our leave. After a long, fun and tiring afternoon at the beach, I settle down for bedtime. I think to myself, being a dog isn't all that bad after all. I get to live life to the fullest. Without the hardships of the bad times, we will never get to fully appreciate the beauty and wonderful experiences of the good times. Writing this book has made me realise that. Thank you, Helena, for that wonderful narration. Uh, the inner monologue of a dog, again, written by the talented Ella Good. If anyone has a dog, you might have found that strangely accurate sounding, um, especially the part where they're trying to do puppy dog eyes to get out of something that they've done wrong. I know that my dog does that. Um, so uh, next up, we have John Quick by Ellie Rhodes, and this one is narrated by the wonderful Anna Martin. This is the story of John Quick. It was a late afternoon on a Sunday, sometime in midsummer when the air was stagnant, almost too hot to breathe. Luke was laid out on the sofa in his boxes. His sweaty clothes had been left in a pile on the floor. The newly opened beer can he held on his bony chest was rocking gently while Luke kept his eyes glued to the TV screen. We were watching John Wick for the 100th time, and there was always a silent hypnosis from Luke whenever Keanu Reeves was on the screen. I was curled up on the armchair, my phone balanced on my thighs, looking between the smaller screen and the larger one, where Reeves was waking up to find his puppy dead. A meow from behind the armchair made me knock my phone to the floor beach ball-like silhouette waddled out from behind me and brushed its fluffy body back and forth against the leg of the chair. We had adopted John that morning. I leant over to pick up my phone but found my hand was soon stroking John's neck. He purred and lifted his little face up so I could scratch onto his chin. Luke turned and scowled. He'd been after a Rottweiler or a Doberman this morning. Definitely not a John. The more beer Luke drank, though, the less willing he was to argue with me. So he turned back to the TV. John was an odd name for a cat. It sounded too human. I started thinking of more cattish names as he migrated under the beer-infested coffee table. Mittens. Button. 
Stanley. The speaker started ringing gunfire throughout the living room. John leapt and hit the bottom of the table with a thud. Luke laughed. Can't you turn that bleeding thing down a bit? I asked. It's too loud. The neighbours will have a go at us again. Luke rolled his eyes, but reached for the remote and turned the TV down a little. He's no John Wick, is he? Luke asked, nodding towards the cat. He'd never be a wick because he doesn't have the legs to stand for more than five minutes, let alone run across New York looking for the guys who killed his dog, I said. Luke laughed again. <laughs> yeah, John Quick here. And so the tabby whose stomach poured around him as if he were melting into a soggy pile of fur and chewing at our carpet was christened John Luke had just put on the second John Wick film when my stomach started to whine. I looked at the clock hanging above the boarded up fireplace and saw it was seven in the evening. I told Luke I was going to stick a meal in the microwave and he scoffed. We can't afford dinner tonight, now we've got to feed the cat. We'll have a Twix before bed. Luke was bringing in most of the income so I didn't want to talk back. As the gunfire and yelling continued, my underarms started to run with sweat soaking the sides of my vest top. Droplets started running down my jaw while the skin on my cheeks burned like the warming surface of a stove. I wouldn't have been so worried if the evening's chill breath wasn't blowing through the open windows. John, now morphing into a featureless fuzzy ball, waddled over to my chair and leapt up onto my lap. He, his nose nuzzled into my wet vest top his paws massaging my tightening stomach. He pulled his face away and stared up at me, nagging meows escaping his mouth. Luke, I'm not feeling so good. I think I need that Twix now, I said. Luke turned to me, probably scowling, but it was hard to tell when his face was a blank canvas. What? he asked. I told him I was getting really hot. My stomach was twisting and everything was blurry. He told me I was just dehydrated and to get some water. I don't think it's dehydration. Remember last week the doctor said I, I, I may have. I started, you're not diabetic, Sarah. You're overreacting. You could convince the doctor you have cancer with the way you big everything up. Just have a drink and watch the bleeding film. My legs wobbled like wet noodles and I kept bouncing off the wall. It didn't help that John was weaving around my ankles, still meowing, but I managed to get over to the other side of the room to our little corner kitchen. I twisted the tap until it couldn't let out any more water and reached for a dirty glass on the side. My hand missed and the glass flew through the air, smashing against the floor tiles. John leapt away, hissing. Jesus, Sarah, what are you playing at? Luke yelled. John was meowing louder. I, I told you, I'm, I'm not feeling good, Luke. I, I think I need... What you need, Luke said, is to stop being a drama queen and feed that bloody cat. I took a handful of cat food from the gigantic bag left on the counter and bent down to feed John. He started to creep closer, still meowing, but I, I slipped and fell down to the glass-covered floor. John ran away from the kitchen. My right arm and leg were stinging and I could see blobby patches of red on my skin as I slowly stood up. I had to grip the counter to keep myself upright. My chest was pounding and my brain felt crushed under the fear. People died from diabetes. I slowly made my way to the cabinet where Luke kept the snacks.
Don had to come back and was scratching at the drawer, so I had to push him away to open it. Luke got up when he saw me with the Twix bar and grabbed my hand. Don't you dare! I told you to wait! Luke shouted. The gunfire on the TV, Luke's voice and John's meowing reverberated around my skull. My body felt overworked and like it would just collapse. I, I had to get to the hospital. The Twix slipped from my sweaty hand and Luke fell to the sofa with it. I stumbled from the living room and out the front door where the sun shone into my eyes and the breeze shifted the sweat across my bleeding hot skin. I made it across the road. Lucky that no cars were coming because I wouldn't have been able to see them and took a break on the other side, holding onto someone's garden wall for support. Beyond the sound of blood gushing in my ears, I heard a faint cry of meow. Something squat and round raced out the front door of our house and darted across the road. There was a loud horn. My heart jolted. A wall of light flashed across the tarmac. Smack. The meowing blob skidded a few metres away. Something shimmering flew from the crash and landed at my feet. It was the Twix. I've been sitting in the reception for three hours. God knows where Luke is and I honestly don't care. One of the neighbours had heard the yelling and watched everything take place from her window. She wrapped John in a coat and drove, drove us both to the vets. In the car I ate the Twix bar and everything started to play out in my head a lot clearer. Sapphire, the neighbour, had been sat with me the whole time. She plastered up my arm with a little medical kit from her handbag, brought me some more snacks from the vending machine and is now holding me. A vet in a white coat leaves the operation room they took John into, takes the rubber glove off his hands and throws them into the bin next to the door. He sees us on the row of plastic chairs. The only one's here because who else would be at the vets at night? He makes his way towards us. His eyes hold a concerned look. I stop breathing. Is he? I begin. John's going to make it, he says. But you look like you need to see a doctor. I hold tightly to Sapphire and start crying into her jacket. Anna Martin there, reading John Quick by Ellie Rhodes. It's amazing how intuitive animals can be, especially when we're struggling with something or we're upset. Um, they're often more attuned than we give them credit for, and I think this story is a wonderful depiction of that. So thank you, Ellie, and thank you, Anna. So, finally, our last story of the evening. This one is by the talented Holly Morris, and it is read by Beth Davey. This story is The Boy and the Wrath of Poseidon. The Boy and the Wrath of Poseidon by Holly Morris. I'd forgotten what it was like to feel the warmth of the sun when I heard him call me. At first, I'd not paid much attention. There'd been calls reaching my cave since I'd made it my home many years ago. But they had never been for me, maybe for help or blessings, 
sometimes a desperate prayer of salvation for whatever God they cried to. They all ended up the same, resting in the coral gardens, wrapped up and silent forever. But when I heard the call again, it lodged a memory that had stuck like a barnacle in my brain. He was calling me home. The ocean was a brilliant blue with the fun sun fighting to shine upon my door. As I peered up to the surface above me, I saw the bellies of the sharks and the bubbles from the shoals of fish. So nothing was definite. But as I heard the song again, I knew it was coming from the cliff. The cave walls cracked and ground as I twisted my way out, my wings already cricketing and jostling to be free. And then I was out and I could feel my entire body unfold. The coral floor darkened as I stole its light. I felt the tremors of animals dart away. Their fears dancing on the water. He's awake. He's coming. Instantly, I felt the power again. And as I unfurled my wings, the waves themselves bowed before me. My wings were a kaleidoscope of colours, stained from the coral and the petrol. So they were in an iridescent mix of purples and greens. I felt my master's power surge through the water and into my bloodstream. And I felt the core of my being ignite into a full blaze. Everything came into focus. The invisible current, the tremors of the floor beneath me. The whisper of the Aphrodite calling from afar away. I was the threat of the gods and I was back to rule the hunting ground. But I wasn't looking for the hunt. I was looking up ready to answer the call I hadn't heard in so long. I spread my wings, shot up through the water like a bullet, the usual crushing pressure, scraping my skin and making my body burst with energy. I did not need my wings for push for. I moved through the water like it was air, barely feeling it. The water became lighter. I felt how it warmed as I got closer to the sun. And then I broke the surface and my lungs were filled for the first time in years. I drank it in and did a triumphant swoop, letting my wings slice the water. The cliff has grown since I had last seen it, but I could see a figure at the edge where the call was coming from. I spread my wings and burst up, readying myself to see an army of warriors or my master in all his glory. Maybe it would be killing after all this time. I wasn't expecting to see a boy. He had been sat on the cliff when I first rose, but now scrambled to his feet, holding the most bizarre weapon I'd ever seen. It was long and thin and wrapped in what looked like the little yellow jaws, but they seemed to be flickering light and attached to a bit of box, which was stuck to the handle. Dangling on some thin string was a small hook with a worm wriggling hopelessly. I felt kindling of the fire rise at the back of my throat and I readied myself to blast the boy to bits if he tried to wield his weapon at me. He did not run away or scream when I rose from the water but looked at me with such wonder I thought he was looking into my soul. He gasped at the way I shone in the sun 
not once flinching at the steam that split from my skin or the way my talons glittered menacingly. He looked exactly like he looked like my friend when he was a boy, a little smaller and not as many muscles, but the big blue eyes were unmistakably killings. The boy seemed to speak, but I was unable to answer, for he spoke in a tongue I did not know. While I moved and learnt towards the tide over the decade, I had not spoken in so long. I was never given a chance to speak near the end, preferring to kill rather than be killed. I thrashed my towel in anguish and waves ten feet high burst into existence. They crashed against the rocks below, causing the whole cliffs to tremor, and yet the boy did not show signs of fear. He scrunched his face, concentrating, and when he spoke again, it was like honey to my ears. What is your name? He was speaking in Greek. The tongue of my master, Killen, had been the only other human to talk to me in this language with such kindness. I spread my wings as wide as they could go, dousing the boy in the warmth salt spray as I replied, I am Eldris, the wrath of Poseidon, the ruler of the sea. I am the only one besides my master who the sea listens to and have brought kingdoms to rest in ruins never to be rebuilt. I was the first creature of the depths and has been forced to hide and watch humans destroy the home I'd fought to protect. Only resurface now because I heard the song only my master uses, the ballads of the Aphrodite. Poseidon's wife, the boy pointed excitedly. Grandpa Killin reads me their stories every night. That's why I'm here. He brandished his light up stick, which upon closer inspection looked like a fishing rod. I've been trying to catch something so I can ask if it's ever seen Poseidon's palace. You are not speaking in your native tongue. How do you know the language of my master? I asked. My grandpa. He only speaks Greek and I live with him. He wouldn't like it if he knew I was here. The boy shook his head. Little droplets of water flying everywhere. But I had to see if his stories about you were real. I'm Rudy. Then without hesitation, he held his hand out to me and instantly my talons sprang out. Rudy was only a boy, but I wouldn't let that fool me. I felt the pickles on my claws as they glowed, emerald, and I readied the waters to react to my command, waiting for the attack. But once again, it did not come. Rudy's arm stayed outstretched until it began to shake at the elbows. He dropped his fishing rod and cupped his elbows for extra support, frowning as my rage died. The waves around the bay calmed and then smoothed until the ocean looked like miles of glittering green glass. I retracted my talons and curled in my wings a little more, letting the sun shine on Rudy's face again. Against my better judgment, I bowed my head down, exposing the soft skin between my eyes. Rudy's hands were warm and gentle as he smothered my scowls, staring clear of my eyes and mouth. Delighted, he drew his hand back, giggling, twisting his upper body side to side, picking the fishing rod back up. 
sat right on the edge of the cliff, his little feet kicking happily above the sheer drop beneath him. He wound up the line, then expertly cast it, watching the small hook plop into the churning water below. I watched, confused. If he knew who I was, he then had knowledge of what I was made to do, what power I had. It was what always happened when humans found me. They chained me, tortured me, offered sacrifices of wealth and power if I bowed to them and did their bidding. But as I watched Rudy patiently sit, waiting for a fish that would never come, I did not feel afraid of him. Why do you wish to know about Poseidon's palace? I asked. Rudy replied, Grandpa says that the stables had been seahorses big enough for me to ride. I want to take one in to show and tell. Show and tell? You get to take some in something cool, he began, and show it to your friends at school. Rudy suddenly scowled, then said that Grandpa Killing was crazy and that his stories weren't true. So if I showed up with a pet seahorse, I could ride it and that would stop him laughing at me. I turned my gaze back at the sea. I narrowed my focus using the powers of the ocean to scan the miles of the deck searching for prey. I found it and held on, drawing it to the cliffs with such speed I had to slow to keep the waves and the creatures breathing. The shimmering tower of the seahorse flickered up from the waves and Ruby gasped. Then, under my orders, there was another burst of showering water, and a colossal seahorse flew into the air, sparkling pink, and as large as a chariot, and it took one look at me, sheeked and divided back into the sea. I watched it swim right into Rudy's trap, the line wrapping around its tail and holding it tight. Rudy squealed in delight and started ranting in English. Then remembered I couldn't understand him. How did you do that? He asked. I control all the animals in my master's kingdom, I replied. The seahorse is yours to use for tomorrow, so as long as he is returned to Poseidon's stables afterwards. He'll wait for you at the bay and the bottom of the cliff. How can you be sure? Because if he doesn't, I'll eat him. No! Rudy yelled. I snorted a flash of the sea spray into his hair. I'm joking. Bring him back to the same shore tomorrow and I'll make sure he gets home. Suddenly, I felt the current of the water change. Looking round, <laughs> I spotted a dark shadow cutting its way through the water, <laughs> moving around the cliff and coming our way. It was a boat, sleek and robust. I didn't need to see who it belonged to, to know that there would be plenty of people on its deck. I had to get out there. I must leave, I said abruptly, and planned on trying to escape unseen. I focused my vision on a bright spot between the rocks, tucked my wings up close to my body and fell into a fast dive. Will you come back? Rudy yelled after me as I fell. I waited until I could see the coral under the water before twisting and shooting back up to greet him. I stayed airborne, beating my wings to keep me level with the boy's face. If you call me, I will come. You promise? He asked. I never made promises to humans. Too many times I have heard them lie and break promises to each other. 
Truth to them is as frequent as the blue men. But I already knew that Zeus himself could set the ocean on fire and I would answer Rudy's call. I promise, I said. It was a first and last promise that I ever kept. Thank you, Beth, for reading our final story and for Holly for writing it and allowing us to be able to share it with you all. Um, I hope you enjoyed each story as much as I did. I love the variety this month. I hope you did as well. Uh, let us know how we did, what you thought of it. Um, as per usual, all of the links to our socials and the way you can donate will be in the description. Uh, it's all down below, so go ahead, get clicking. Um, thank you for staying tuned and for tuning in for this long. If you've made it this far and you listened to all the stories and you enjoyed them, please let us know. Uh, we do this off our own backs for fun to raise money for charity. So thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again. Thank you enough so much for tuning in, for liking and supporting us. You know, we're new to this, so we really, really appreciate it. Um, now, that's it. We're all done. It's time to bid adieu and it's past your bedtime. Goodbye.